And you're listening to Pop Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of the show. And in the virtual studio today is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder here at Pop Health Week. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Greg. Welcome to you, too. Thank you. Thank you. Again, this is our second broadcast from South Lake Tahoe. We're looking forward to ski season here. And for those of you not familiar with Fred, he's a veteran healthcare executive and the president of Accountable Health LLC, which is a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Population Health Management and the advisory board of Care Innovations Validation Institute. He is also past chair and a four former board member of the Population Health Alliance. Fred is known on Twitter as F.S. Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy consulting for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author acowatch.com, healthinnovationmedia.com, and precisionmedicine.center. And if you're in the market for digital media content development, curation, and engagement for your hospital, health system, or physician venture, or even conference social media amplification, ping me on Twitter via Add2HealthGuru or Greg at HealthInnovationMedia.com. And Greg is with two Gs. And now for today's special guest who's making an encore appearance, Judson Judd Brewer, MD, PhD, is the founder of Claritas Mind Sciences. Be sure to follow him via at Claritus Mind and at Judson Brewer on Twitter. He's a thought leader in the science of self-mastery, having combined over 15 years of experience with mindfulness training with his scientific research therein. He has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, spoken at international conferences, and his work has been featured on 60 Minutes at TEDx, Time Magazine, Top 100 New Discoveries of 2013, Forbes, CNN, BBC, NPR, Business Week, and others. He also writes an addiction blog for the Huffington Post. He graduated cum laude from Princeton University, received his MD-PhD from Washington University in St. Louis, and completed his psychiatry residency at Yale University School of Medicine, where he spent five years on the faculty as an assistant professor and medical director of the Yale Therapeutic Neuroscience Clinic. He is currently the director of research at the Center for Mindfulness and an associate professor in medicine and psychiatry at UMass Medical School. Based on his recent discoveries of brain regions involved in meditation, he is developing novel neurofeedback techniques to measure and train meditative flow states. So with that introduction, Fred, over to you. Thank you so much, Greg, and welcome to the show, Judd. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's fantastic. So um, let's talk a little bit first about mindfulness. Uh, coming out of the left coast at Berkeley, this whole idea of meditation, this and that, what really is the science behind some of the work you do? That's a great question. So mindfulness probably, you know, it's a very popular term these days and can mean anything from, you know, sitting on a, you know, on a beach singing Kumbaya to, um, you know, to bettering your performance in the gym. So I think it's an important question to start with. Um, the way I think about it is, uh, I, and I'm a scientist, so I really think about it from those terms is, 
you know, if we understand how the brain works, so for example, positive and negative reinforcement, operant conditioning is one of the best known phenomenon for how we learn. Um, is, and if we look at those, if we look at operant conditioning, we can see that we get, you know, when something's pleasant, we have this urge to make that pleasant thing continue. So if we eat a cupcake, we have an urge to eat another cupcake because it feels good. Or um, if we if something bad happens, then we learn ways to make those bad things go away. So if we if our boss yells at us, then we might have learned, oh, eat a cupcake because it feels good. So we go out and eat a cupcake. And the way so those both involve push and pull. So we we pull the pleasant toward us and try to keep it continuing or to maintain it. And then the unpleasant, we push it away as quickly as we can. So with with that perspective, I think of mindfulness as a way to hold whatever's happening in our awareness uh, such that we're not getting sucked into the push and pull. So we're there, we're equanimous, we're being with it, and it gives us space to respond to whatever's happening rather than habitually re- react through these you know, positive and negative reinforcement loops. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And um you know, it's interesting, as, a, as we'll probably get into a little bit later, I've been using uh, one of your apps, Eat Right Now, and, and noticing sort of how, how it asks you to kind of, I guess, it's sort of step back and look at what's going on in a sense versus having that impact you. Is that sort of part of it? Yes, absolutely. And, and you've chosen to take mindfulness, which there really is a lot of research around, and obviously you've done a bunch of it, and apply it to two of probably some of the biggest issues we face in the United States around healthcare costs, um, you know, the health status of our communities, et cetera, which is smoking and eating. So tell us a little bit about how you sort of take that science and then apply it to those two areas. Sure. So we, when I was in residency, I had uh, done a small study looking at mindfulness training for alcohol and cocaine dependence and found that it was as good as gold standard treatment for preventing relapse. And that really emboldened us to look at one of the hardest addictions to quit and most costly, as you point out, is smoking cessation. So we did a randomized control trial uh, comparing mindfulness training to gold standard therapy and Lo and behold, we found that it was uh, twice as good at helping people quit and stay quit um, at the end of treatment and four t- five times as good at our four-month follow-up. So that was really, you know, we saw that. We were really encouraged by those results. And then um, looked one of my colleagues at Yale, Kathy Carroll, was uh, exploring the fidelity measure and how well do people, you know, who are trained to deliver a manualized treatment, how well do they do it delivering it? And she found that it, the answer is they're not particularly great at following manualized treatment. So she started developing online cognitive behavioral therapy. And with that, as a kind of an inspiration, we developed app-based mindfulness training so that we could, you know, we could put the training right in the hands of people, right in the places where they're smoking. So if you go and see people outside smoking, they're usually holding a cigarette in one hand and their cell phone in another. So we can deliver the training right to their fingertips through, you know, we use short bite-sized trainings, uh, videos and animations and in-the-moment exercises and really try to take that evidence-based training and deliver it in a way that's 100% fidelity because you know exactly what's going to come out of the video, and we can test to see how efficacious that is. So you've leveraged the technology, you know, because I think about, you know, oh, you're going to have to sit with somebody and 
learn these techniques. And as you said, you could be sitting with one person who does the training one way and another person who does it the other way. But you've you've you're you're leveraging now this go to device that everyone has through an app to provide the mindfulness training. Yes, yes. And that also makes it more accessible. You know, more and more people have smartphones and I think that's the you know I don't know what the projections are, but basically everybody, they're going to stop making flip phones if they haven't already. So everybody's going to be on a smartphone, and this is a way to disseminate evidence-based training on a population health level, which is really exciting to us. And you've done some studies on, on the use of this and how, how well it works? Yes, we've got, so as I mentioned, our in-person study that showed superior efficacy uh, we now have three or four uh, clinical trials that are at various stages. Uh, none of them have are, are finished and reported yet, but for our smoking cessation program, uh, one for adolescents, another for adults across the country, we've just started another study where we're actually looking at the neural mechanisms where we, uh, we scan people's brains using our fMRI scanner before they start the smoking, the craving to quit app, and then um, right after they finish the training so we can look at the brain changes with that. Uh, so we're we're doing a lot of of work around the craving to quit out, looking at mechanism, looking at efficacy, and we've um, just completed our first uh, pilot clinical trial of our Eat Right Now program as well. And, and that's really fantastic because if you think about, it, at least from my perspective, you know, there's been this incredible explosion in health apps, and it, just like in the industry, I tend to focus a lot on, which is these wellness and population health programs. But there's been very few studies on any of them out there. Most of them probably will never have studies done to show whether or not they actually work. But you sort of come at it from the side of, I'm a researcher. Let's make sure this thing works. We're putting it out and then revise it as we go versus the typical, hey, I launched an app. Let's see if maybe I can get some anecdotal data. Right, right. And I think, you know, not only the researcher perspective is, you know, those are glasses that I wear, but also a clinician. And so what I've been frustrated with is seeing um, things that are developed by people that don't have a lot of clinical experience or don't have a lot of experience, you know, with, with the populations that they're trying to affect. And and I think there can be some loss of efficacy and engagement there. So we, you know, something that kind of propelled us to say, okay, well, <laughs> we'll, we'll do it ourselves if nobody else is going to do it. And, and it also helped because we could design good clinical trials as part of it because those trials are really expensive, hard to do, take a long time. And, you know, if you're a startup, your investors aren't that excited to wait five years for your results. They just want to get right. their 10x or whatever. Sure. And, and so sort of getting to that side of it, you, you have these apps now, the Crave to Quit and the Eat Right Now app are, are available for individuals to download. And then I guess also there's a, a possibility for employers or other groups or even providers to, uh, to come up with a way to use these. Yes. Yeah. So it, they're available on the app, you know, the app stores on iTunes and Google Play if people just want to use them and there's some free demos, you know, for people to try it out. And we're also, um, you know, if they're employers or other groups that want to, you know, have bulk licenses or whatever, we have a way to be able to um, provide those to them where they can offer the to their clients or their patients or, or whatever for free or a reduced rate based on based on that. So we, we're just trying to work with all the groups that are looking for these solutions um, to help them, you know, help them help their clients and their patients. 
Right. And I would, I would guess, I mean, I think the last statistics I saw around smoking is we sort of plateaued in terms of lowering the rates. So we really do need to look to new ideas to get those last, to get to that last mile potentially. Yes, absolutely. And um, so I, I'm not a smoker, so I haven't looked at the, at the great equipment, but talk a little bit about how that, that app works and how individuals or organizations would use that. The app is set up in a, a basically a 21-day program where uh, people go through a, a new training building on the previous day for those three weeks. And what it does is, is through these didactic trainings and, and, and experiential training lessons that they get through the videos and animations, they literally learn how to change their relationship to smoking. So the first thing we do is we teach them this habit loop where they can start to identify where they get caught up in their habits. And then we do this paradoxical thing, which basically helps them rub their face in it and say, you know, go ahead and smoke, but really pay attention when you do. See what you get from it. And people come back and they're like, oh, my God, I smoked 40 years and I didn't realize how bad cigarettes taste. Why didn't I notice this before? Uh, and that's a really important piece because this is the beginning of the end in terms of them becoming disenchanted with the smoking. And this provides the motivation for them to then learn our next lessons, which can help them write out the cravings and see them for what they are. Like we talked about uh, you know, with the definition of mindfulness, they can notice that these urges just are body sensations that are literally pushing them to smoke cigarettes. And so through that, through this gradual training and uh, we can help them learn this and solidify their skills so that they can write out any craving. Um, this is also paired with an online community where they can get support and uh, both from peers as well as experts so that we can make sure that they're supported every step of the way. And we even now have in-app coaching where we've got trained mindfulness facilitators who can you know, asynchronously guide them along the way. Um, so we're, we're really trying to make this comprehensive. And in that, you know, that's kind of been the foundation for the Eat Right Now program where those same principles are applied to stress and emotional eating. Yet, as I'm sure we can all imagine, you don't have to smoke to live, but you do have to eat. So it, there are some nuances with the eating program that make it even, I would say, more fun because um, people get to really start to see and differentiate the joy of eating from what may not be as exciting about overeating, for example, or stress eating or eating when a bunch of junk food when they're not hungry. Mm -hmm. And I've been using the, uh, the Eat Right Now app for, it's actually now I'm on day seven. I just finished my day seven lesson. And um, it's, it's been interesting for me because it's made me look at eating completely differently than I did before because I think I was one of those normal people who just sit down, load it in and move on and uh, and and obviously you talk about sometimes you you that's uh oh i'm a little stressed so i'm sitting in front of the tv and i'm loading that stuff in or i'm somewhere else not just necessarily a meal and um i found it, it it's really helped me to to just begin to look at what i do why i do it and how i do it as you talk about in the app mm -hmm. great i'm glad to hear yeah and so are you are you getting fairly positive feedback from individuals who have used this? We are. You know, I've, I've been really surprised in a very heartening way where we have people who are constantly commenting on the forum, on our online community, where they're saying, you know, I've tried 
different diet programs for 15 years. One guy said he'd been do, eating eating for 50 years. He's like, I can't, you know, I've been trying to diet for 50 years, and this is like this is completely different than these other things, and it seems like it's actually working for me. So we've been getting really good feedback in, um, from the folks that are using it, and you know, it it at first sometimes it can seem paradoxical because we don't tell them to do the usual things like restrict you know, don't eat this, check your calories, you know, track, track, track. There's actually data coming out now suggesting that, um, you know, like fitness tracking doesn't actually necessarily help with weight loss programs. And, you know, I think it's a really interesting finding. It, it may suggest that they're not actually getting at the core mechanism of what's driving this behavior in the first place. And what the people in our community are saying is, you know, wow, you're finally helping me see what my habits are and from seeing those clearly, I'm able to change them. Right, and and so um, let's talk about that a little bit from a perspective of there are tons of these diets out there, um, but why don't they work? It seems like you know everybody goes for a little while and then they end up gaining the weight back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And there was a book that came out recently by uh, Sandra Amit, uh, who's a neuroscientist. Uh, something about why diets fail. And it's a really interesting, she, she really highlights what's now emerged over the last five years in terms of dieting. And this has been shown in animal models and in humans as well, where when you, rest, when you calorie restrict, your body goes into starvation mode. And it says, dude, we're going to hold on to every calorie we've got. So it slows down its metabolism. It does all of these things metabolically to prepare for the, for the famine. And so, of course, it's really challenging to lose weight at those times. So it feels like a real struggle. And once, you know, once we stop restricting the calories, then our body says, oh, you better load them on and pack them in in case there's another famine. So this is what's described as yo-yo dieting. And um, these set points get set higher and higher and higher. And in some cases, people end up gaining more weight than they've lost in the first place. Uh, there was an interesting uh, um, article, I think, even in the New York Times about this, The Biggest Loser, where they followed people, you know, who'd lost tons of weight, and then, you know, a, a huge percentage of them regained all of that, and then even more. Right. I recall seeing that. And you, you touched on it a little bit. And, you know, I, I play with all these things. So Fitbits, Garmin, you know, Move, Basis Watch, Google Glass. And then I also played with a bunch of the apps, whether it was Atkins or or a tracker for this or that. And as you said, they're all sort of gathering data or doing some stuff, but perhaps they're not getting to the underlying cause. And uh, I guess that's where mindfulness, which begins to make you aware of what's driving yourself to do it, is sort of that piece of it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, so there can be extrinsic motivators. So for example, there are weigh-ins at Weight Watchers, for example. And so you step on the scale and you're either punished for you know, self-flagellation for not meeting your weight or you get this extrinsic reward because the scale says, great job, and everybody in the group claps or whatever. Um, so there's, you know, there's often this extrinsic motivation that comes, you know, oh, I, I need to lose weight and that's going to be my reward. What we're doing is saying, let's forget these extrinsic motivators, you know, the carrot and the stick. Let's move intrinsically. What can we find that's inherently rewarding and tap into that same neural learning process, but find the inherent rewards that might be more sustainable and at the same time get at the core root of the problem itself? 
Mm-hmm. So the are there any groups you know when you think about from a, a smoking cessation program or a my or or an eating right program? Are there any groups or or types of personalities that might struggle with something like this or not be as effective? It's a really good question, and you know we're still relatively early on in our research, and we're collecting personality data um, to see you know if there are some clues there. But it's it's really what we found is we've you know I've started this work with um, patients with binge eating disorder. So in that group, it seems to work pretty well. Um, we've since broadened it to basically anybody that has that stress or emotionally eats, which is a quite a, you know it's a huge number of people that raise your hand when you ask them if they eat it when they're stressed or bored. And we haven't mm-hmm. yet found um, a group of people where they're like, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. This doesn't work for me at all, um, because it's such a it, it's such a fundamental learning process that we can all relate to. But what about I, the? That, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Please. Well, I was just going to say I, I want to caveat that I, again. I want to say this is early, and well, we may be missing something. So I don't want to sound Pollyannish and say this is the mm-hmm. cure all for everybody. Go ahead. Right, right. And, and and what you're really getting at, as you talked about, is, you know, it's about these cravings. It's about sort of an addictive type of behavior kind of thing. What about the flip side? Would there, you know, just thinking down the road, is there a possibility to apply this to people who have um, eating disorders like, say, bulimia or anorexia? Would that be sort of a reverse pivot on this or something? Yeah, it's a really good question. So for folks with anorexia, uh, as an example, um, the anorexia, the rewards, so there's reward that comes often extrinsically from, you know, maintaining a very low weight or not eating food, you know, like kind of maintaining control or looking in the mirror. So the rewards are similar in the sense that, you know, they, these extrinsic rewards that we're talking about, yet with anorexia, um, they're, they're not, you know, they're often eating very little and eating very healthy, you know, like almost overly healthily. And so I think with anorexia, we haven't, um, I think there could be a pivot to that, but that would probably be a a separate thing where someone would have to really directly address the issues that they're dealing with because, and in in particular, because anorexia is such a lethal disorder. So it's, it's got a very high mortality rate. And I would think of something like this being a, um, you know, an augmentation strategy for the village that it often takes to treat anorexia. Uh, with bulimia, I think it, bulimia fits more into the range of binge eating disorder mm-hmm. because there's the binging and the purging. And so I think with bulimia, this may be, you know, this may be more, uh, something like this might be helpful. We just haven't studied that ourselves. So in, in a broader sense, um, you know, I've, I, as I said, I found it very interesting for myself and begun to understand, okay, what, what am I feeling? Is it really hunger? Do I need to eat? And it's actually caused me to just actually eat less and less frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And so, and, and, and recognize that, you know, I'm actually not hungry right now, even though I may have gotten some signals that, hey, it's time to eat or something like that. So are there other areas? I mean, could this be more broadened out into, say, helping people with diabetes management or asthma or some of those other chronic conditions? Yes, absolutely. I think what you're talking about from your own experience is what we've been seeing most commonly is is people like stopping, checking to see if they're actually hungry. Um, even we have some people in our group who are diabetic, and they you know they talk about 
being able to manage their blood glucose better because they're you know they're not over they're not indulging they're not overeating and they're also finding ways to um, eat when they need to eat because sometimes if somebody has severe diabetes you know and their blood glucose gets very low they suddenly go into panic mode and they start shoveling food in because of the negative reward of of you know uh, when they're when they really have hypoglycemia. Uh-huh. And, and one area of the, of the app I really haven't gotten into that much is the social and the peer and the, and the posting and things. Have there been studies to show that that can, can move the needle or push the individual to change their behavior? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I know the most about that in terms of smoking cessation. And what, I, what the studies have suggested that you can get a, you know, up to a three to fourfold increase in quit rates with social support. So I think it's a big aspect. And we see this, you know, there are lots of smoking cessation communities. And there are lots of communities like Weight Watchers has a community component, whether it's online or in person. So the social aspect, I think, can be tremendously helpful. And we see this, you know, with our online community, we moderate it. But it's amazing how little, knock on wood, how little we have to moderate because everybody is so supportive of each other and really just getting in there, relating to each other, speaking from their own experience and helping each other out. It, it's really, really fun to just go in and read the, read the posts and read their journals and read the discussions that they start. And do you see, have you seen, you know, I'm thinking about this, I'm a little bit older. Um, have you seen any difference, obviously, in the networking and the social based on age or anything like that? Or maybe the younger millennials or others are more, are, are, are doing that more than, say, somebody in their 50s or 60s who may be using the app? Yeah, we were expecting to see that. And, and the only hurdles that we've seen thus far are that, um, some people have a little, you know, they'll just struggle to kind of understand the format of the forum, for example, like how to post, how to reply to posts. But once they learn that, which happens relatively quickly, they're just as, they're just as on there as everybody else. Um, and sometimes more so, you know, like some folks, we have some folks in their 60s who are, you know, have more time. Um, they're retired or, or whatever, and so they're actually on the on the forum more than some of the younger folks. And and I would think that might create an interesting feedback. Getting back to what you talked about, which is perhaps loneliness triggers eating. You're on the app. You communicate more in a social group. You are an elderly person, tend to have more issues with loneliness. So maybe there's a double loop going there that really amplifies the effect. You know, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but the whole, you know, dealing with loneliness is, is emerging as this great thing for the elderly. Mm -hmm. So I, I never thought about that. That's a great connection. Yeah, it's certainly something maybe in your, in your future research, maybe you might want to look into some of that as well. Um, but I know we're, we're getting down to the final few uh, minutes here on the show. If individuals are interested, say, in learning more about mindfulness or the apps, where do they, where do they go? Probably the easiest place to go would be the eat right now website. It's goeatrightnow.com, Um, as in go eat correctly in the present moment. <laughs> so, um, so that's the easiest place to learn about it. Uh, we have a, a corporate website, uh, claritasmind.com. 
And then I have a website that links to all of these things, judsonbrewer.com. So those are probably the easiest places for people to get those resources. I also have a book that describes all of these uh, habit loops and all the research that we've done that's coming out through Yale University Press in a couple of months that folks can, um, they can read a little bit more about that on Amazon. It's just called The Craving Mind. Um, and there's a subtitle that's longer, you know, like cigarettes and smartphones and love. Um, but the, they can just search my name or search The Craving Mind on Amazon and they should be able to get more information there. That's fantastic. And one final question before we finish up. Obviously, smoking cessation and, and eating are critical issues we're facing in this country now with the obesity epidemic. Are there any other areas you think you may move into next? It's a big build, I would expect. It is. Um, I think general addiction, especially with the opioid crisis that we're seeing here in the Northeast, is one that is on our radar, as well as, you know, I'd love to... I'd love to create one that helps uh, people use their smartphone to become less addicted to their smartphones, such as Twitter <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> that sounds like a good one. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jed. It was really great to have you on Pop Health Week. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Judson Brewer, for his time and generous insights today. Do follow his work at Claritas Mind on Twitter and at Judson Brewer on Twitter as well. Until we meet again on Pop Health Week for Doug Go for Fred Goldstein. This is <laughs> Bye now. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.